title of the sermon is Remember the Gospel. Remember the Gospel. An introduction. The date was July 4th, 1776. Our forefathers led the 13 colonies and they declared their independence from King George III of England and they drafted up the Declaration of Independence. Therefore, every 4th of July, we have a national holiday, a.k.a. Independence Day, right? We know about this. To demonstrate this, to celebrate 4th of July, we have fireworks, parades, maybe carnivals, right? Cookouts, picnics, barbecues, a day off from work, right? These are good things. Why, though? Even our great nation understands it's important to remember who we are. To remember. To remember our freedoms and liberties. To remember our our history. To remember the cost of independence. And to help unify the nation. And And our nation perhaps is its most fragmented state in the history of our country. What a reminder that Our citizenship is in heaven. This is just a temporary thing. Things are shifting. This is a very polarizing time. Political issues, political parties. You can find a conflict anywhere you go. Morals, values, different belief systems. This is definitely a fragmented time. And 2,000 years ago in Corinth, the the city of Corinth had a church. And they were going through the same thing. Battered with sin. Division, worldliness was influencing the church, and they're sputtering in their walk because of sin. And Paul knew that they needed a reminder of who they were. The gospel, euangelion, the gospel, which means the good news, the greatest news, really. And there's no other words that would matter as much as the gospel, no other concepts or ideals that matters and lasts longer than the gospel. And Paul sets to remind the Corinthians of the power of the gospel, the person of the gospel, the price of the gospel, the resurrection of the gospel, the proof of the gospel, and the grace of the gospel. It's no different today in the church. Listen carefully now. Everything, our eternity, hinges upon how you respond to what is preached today. Either to encourage you to, yes, I am in the faith. I am genuinely in the faith. Or, huh, that's not quite what I believe. That's not quite what I was told when I was a youngster. This is critical, so please, everybody, listen. This is one of those monumental uh, pieces of Scripture that really tests us to see what we believe in and encourages us as well. We must remember the gospel. So let's go to the first point here. I want to be as clear as possible and just so that we understand and so we can really test ourselves. First, things to, first thing to remember, remember the power of the gospel. Remember the power of the gospel, the power of God. Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? For it's the power of God unto salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But those who are, who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel has power in it, no matter who you are. 
no matter where you're from, no matter how you got here sitting here today, no matter what you've even done, known and unknown, God sees it all. The gospel message can change lives for eternity. The power of the gospel. And verse 1 here, and let me just read some of this again. 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. Acts 18 says that Paul spent 18 months in Corinth evangelizing. God tells him there's many here, so keep evangelizing, keep preaching the word of Christ. So they know what he's talking about. They already heard the gospel. They knew the gospel. It was the same message that Paul was emphasizing. He wasn't giving any new revisions like, hey, by the way, I find something, found out something new about the gospel. This is something that Paul was reminding them of. He's saying, remember the gospel. They knew this message already. And the power of God is unleashed when the gospel is preached. So Paul is reemphasizing the gospel. And this is the progression that the Corinthians went through. The Bible says this, they received it. And the Bible says they stand upon the gospel. The Bible says that they are saved by the gospel. Received, this is a past action. This is something that we all have to recount. If I am in Christ, you know that you received the gospel at one time. You heard it. And this word received is a very endearing term. Take unto oneself, bring close to oneself, that you've embraced the gospel. This is what he's telling the Corinthian church. And this is where you stand. This is what you're believing in right now amidst any persecution, amidst any uh, uh, division, any struggles, any trust. This is what I'm standing on, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Present reality. Past reality, you received it. Present, this is what I believe in. And the Bible also goes on to say that you are saved. This is our current status and our future reality. So really, the power of the gospel, how powerful is it? The gospel defines our past, present, and future realities. It defines the Christian life. This is who we are. And it's able to transform them. And so Paul, I believe, as a good pastor, tries to do two things here in this, in this section of Corinthians. He tries to encourage, and he tries to admonish. What do I mean by that? He knew that the Corinthians were just beat up by sin and division, and they're going through hard times. It was a hard time in their life of the church. So he's reminding them, look, look at the treasures that you have through the gospel. I know it may not be perfect. I know you might not be perfect. But it's all done. You believe the gospel, you're set. Your past, present, future set. But what he goes on to say in verse 2 says this, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. Do you still believe what I preach to you? Comma, unless you believed in vain. Paul is comforting the afflicted. Some of the Corinthians are afflicted. He's comforting them, encouraging them. But right now, he's also afflicting the comfortable. Some of the Corinthians got very comfortable. They didn't care. Holiness wasn't that big of a deal anymore. Remember, they didn't address sin issues that was going on in 1 Corinthians 5. 
sexual immorality, drunkenness, the rich oppressing the poor, putting in their face, exercising their liberties, no matter who was affected in a negative way. It didn't matter. So Paul's afflicting the comfortable, like, are you kidding me? Unless you believed in vain. And what does this word vain mean? It had no result in the original language. This is what this word means, had no result. So he's asking the Corinthians, and perhaps he's asking us today, do you have a belief with no result? Do you own a belief with no power? Right? A belief that's only cognitive, like I intellectually understand it. Or a belief that, without, that doesn't have trust in the Lord. Or a belief that doesn't, is without repentance to God. Or a belief without surrender to God. A belief that doesn't yield or generate love for God. Paul is saying this type of belief does not save. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, in chapter 13, 2 Corinthians, Paul exhorts the church, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. This is important for all of us to do. It encourages the saints, but if it purifies the body here as well to make sure, are you in the faith? So we're going to go point by point by point about as 1 Corinthians unfolds the gospel for us to test yourself, ask yourself these questions as we point out these next couple points, okay? So let's test ourselves. Point number two, remember the person of the gospel. Remember the person of the gospel. Verse three says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. No more greater information than this, the gospel message. And Paul starts right here. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, 2 says that, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is it. This is it. So listen up. And where does he start? Verse 3, that Christ. Let's stop right there. That Christ. It all starts with a person. Remember the person of the gospel. It all, the gospel is about a person, Christ, Christos. Christ, Christ, in essence, is a title. It's a translation for Messiah, which means anointed one, deliverer, savior. The person of the gospel is Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus Christ is very exclusive. Right, church? What does he say? I am the way. The truth, right? And the life. No one, no one comes to me, comes to the Father except through me, he says. So we need to get this right. We need to know that we're believing in the right Jesus Christ. Amen? This is where it goes. There are many different versions of Jesus today. The Muslims have a, their version of, the Jesus, of Jesus. He's a prophet. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witness, have their version of a Jesus. He's a created being. People who believe in new age beliefs and mysticism, they believe he's a state of consciousness. This is where he reached a state. If you believe in any false version of Jesus, we have a vain belief, a belief without power, a belief that doesn't affect us. So let's talk about who Jesus Christ is, amen? Jesus Christ is the eternal one. Jesus Christ is the second member of the Trinity, God himself. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. 
Jesus Christ upholds all things by the power of his word. He says it to stay together, it does, because he's God. Jesus Christ is the exact image of God, the exact representation of God's nature. He's God in all clear terms. Jesus Christ is all-powerful, all-knowing. Jesus Christ is the one who rules everything, and everyone has all authority. Jesus Christ, in love, humbly, stepped on off the heavenly throne before the throne of God above and was born of a virgin. Jesus Christ became the one and only God-man, fully God, fully man. Some people say truly God and truly man. Jesus Christ is a sinless one who would go to the cross. Jesus Christ is the one who ascended back to heaven who's interceding for you and me right now, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is returning to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ will gather his people someday into his arms to be with him forever. Jesus Christ will be worshipped forever. This is the Christ that we preach. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Is this the Christ that you believe in? If there's something there that goes, Pastor, I don't believe that, let's talk. Pastor, show me where that says in the scriptures, let's talk. Because if you don't believe Jesus Christ, of the scriptures, your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Let's go to the third point. The Revolutionary War lasted from April 19th, 1776 to September 3rd, 1783. Thousands of American lives were lost. They estimate about over 25,000 American lives were lost. Translating to today's currency, billions of dollars were spent to fight this war. And verse 2 says, we are saved. Freedom, victory has a price and a steep price. So point number three is this, remember the price of the gospel, the price of the gospel. Verse three says this, that Christ, Jesus Christ, died for our sins. Why did Jesus Christ need to die? What comes to mind right now? What comes to mind immediately to mind, brothers and sisters? Why did Jesus Christ need to die? It's a sin issue. Sin should come into your mind. Hamartia, this is the original language, which in essence means missing the mark. We've all missed the mark. Romans 3, 23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's every single man, woman, and child to ever walk the earth. We failed countless times, all of us, me included. We've all missed the mark by an infinite mile. We, we haven't come close, guys. We may have some people fooled, but God knows we have not come close. We've had evil thoughts, evil motives. God knows, and you do too, and I do too. In essence, we miss God's holy standard, his perfect standard. And this Jesus Christ nailed it because he's God himself. He's sinless, he's perfect, as Brother Greg read in Isaiah 53. And since we're sinners, what happens to sinners? Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, 
spiritual death, not physical death. We all know it physically we're all dying, right? For some of us, including myself, all I got to do is look in the mirror, right? Know that's happening, right? But this is talking about spiritual death, eternal death. This is talking about hell. This is talking about taking on the judgment of God, being separated from God for eternity, spiritual death. And we're all sinners. And apart from the gospel, we will be judged. But as we sung earlier together to one another and to the Lord, Acts 20, 28 says that the church has been purchased by his blood. Jesus Christ purchased his people through his precious blood. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is a verse that we've read many times, but this is one of the core verses that talks about substitutionary atonement. 2 Corinthians, go to your right to the next book, chapter 5, verse 21. Bible says this, He made him, God the Father made him, Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about. Who knew no sin? He was perfect. He was sinless. He hit the target every single time. To be sin, he treated him as the greatest sinner of all. On our behalf, sinners. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Meaning, Christ took on our sin. Christ took on our punishment. He took our worst and graciously gave us his best, his righteousness, his divine blessing, forgiveness. This is what we should know. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 should be memorized in your mind. And Christ became the God-man. Now you may ask yourself this, why did Jesus Christ have to be the God-man? Why did he have to be truly God, truly man, or fully God and fully man? Well, think about it. In order to redeem man or woman, a man or woman needed to die. Right? A goat or a sheep, as Hebrews talks about, cannot redeem a human being. A man must die for a man. That's what it's talking about. And Jesus Christ was the perfect man, fully man. But you may ask yourself then, well, that's one for one. How does one redeem countless Christians, the elect? He was also God, the, an eternal being, could redeem countless sinners. The God-man. This is why he's truly God, truly man. Fully God, fully man. Let's understand this. We need to understand our heritage. We need to understand why we believe what we believe. We need to understand what we stand on. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And the Bible goes on, back to Corinthians 15, according to the scriptures. Now, what is Paul talking about? He says this twice, and I just want to make sure I explain this. In essence, Paul's referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians is the first account, probably, of the resurrection written down. So the Old Testament is what he's talking about. And in essence, he's talking about how the Old Testament pointed to Christ dying for sinners someday and rising up someday. But there are some very specific prophecies that talk about this that would encourage you to believe this, to encourage you to know that this wasn't plan B by God. Oops, what should I do now? This is plan A the whole time. The Bible says by God's predetermined plan, and by God's foreknowledge, Christ was sent to the cross. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Written a thousand years before Christ would come to the cross. 
Isaiah 53, 5. Let me just turn there and read that for us again. As Brother Greg read, Isaiah 53, 5, approximately 600 years before the time of Christ. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Does that sound familiar? He was crushed for our iniquities, our sinfulness. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, his whip back, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own. We were all sinners. Romans 3, 23. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He treated him like the worst of us. It was planned from before how God will save us. That's how much he loves us. This wasn't plan B. And that he, Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus Christ was buried. This is important that we understand. Jesus died. He wasn't shocked. He wasn't stunned. He wasn't unconscious. He died. They wrapped him up with 70 pounds of spices and cloth and put him in a tomb. He died. Even if he was alive when they were doing that, he would have suffocated and died. He, he, he was dead, physically dead. Now I want to ask this question here, just to go deeper into the gospel here. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15 says that we're saved. That we are saved. My question to you, brothers and sisters, is this. Who has God saved us from, or what has God saved us from? This is important that we understand this. It's going to take you deeper into the mind of God here. Was it he saved us from sin? To certain respects, absolutely. From Satan? From this world that's dissolving? From ourselves, right? Sometimes we could be our own worst enemies for sure. Well, I'm going to read Romans 5, verse 8 through 10. Follow along with me, Romans 5, 8 through 10. So who did Christ save us from? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from who? From what? from the wrath of God through him. Christ saved us from himself. Christ saved us from God. Have you ever thought about it like that? Brothers and sisters, we were once enemies of God. Let me keep reading. For if while we're enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were, if you are not in Christ, you are an enemy of God. And Christians in here, we were once enemies of God. We were re reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Isaiah 53, I want to just keep pounding on Isaiah just to show you how this wasn't just an afterthought. This was determined from ages past. Isaiah 53, 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, crush the suffering servant of Christ, putting him to grief. I'm going to skip down to verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, Jesus' soul, he, the Father, will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities, their sins. 
Isn't that clear in the scriptures who Christ saved us from? That's amazing. God saved us from himself. God has to save us from himself because God is holy. God is a just God. He will execute judgment. This proves even more that judgment is coming. If he didn't spare his own son, he's not going to spare judgment upon sinners. This is a real day that's coming. And as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments after the sermon, let's have this in mind. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you. Let's remember the price of the gospel. Did Jesus Christ remain dead? No, no. So point number four, remember the resurrection of the gospel. Fill in the blank, resurrection of the gospel. Verse four says this, of chapter 15. And he, Jesus Christ, we're talking about a person still, was buried and that he, Jesus Christ, was raised on the third day. Romans 1, 4 says this, that the resurrection of Christ demonstrates or proves that Jesus is the son of God, that he's God himself. Jesus Christ needed to be resurrected. Jesus Christ is alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key to the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ validates the claims of the gospel. The resurrection of Christ ensures that we will be resurrected too someday. Michael Green, theologian, writes, It is the death and resurrection of Jesus, the empty cross, which lies at the heart of the of, of apostolic Christianity and it's God's good news for the world. The death and resurrection of Christ dominated the apostolic preaching. In Acts 2, uh, Peter's first sermon, he talks about death and resurrection of Christ. In Peter's second sermon, he talks about death and resurrection of Christ. In Acts 4.10, where he's before the priests who are trying to persecute him, you know what he talks about, Peter? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 5, the apostles gather the church. What, what are they preaching on? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go through Acts. Go through Acts. That is the theme of the apostles, to preach about the death and resurrection of Christ. And it says, according to the scriptures, Psalm 1610, written, like I said, about 600, or 1,000 years before the time of Christ, says this, talks about Christ's resurrection. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is a symbol of death. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will not allow Christ's body to corrupt and to fall apart like dead bodies do. Christ bodily resurrected. Let me go back to Isaiah 53 again. Verse 10, in the middle, second part of verse 10. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. Jesus Christ will someday see his offspring. That's us. And he will prolong his days. God will raise him up and have him prolong his days. He will live again. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Bodily resurrection. Not just a spirit. Not just some kind of a thought. But Christ's body, his body resurrected from the grave. This is important that we believe this. All of Christianity hinges upon this historical moment. Christ resurrected from the first Easter, the first Lord's Day. This is why we celebrate Christ on the Lord's Day. This is why we remind each other to gather together on the Lord's Day. 
Because this is the day that we remember every week that Christ resurrected from the grave with one another. Jesus Christ is alive. Do you believe this? Now let's finish up here. Let's get back to 1 Corinthians 15. Fifth point. Remember the proof of the gospel. Proof. The proof of the gospel. Acts 1.3 says that Christ, after his resurrection, spent about 40 days walking the earth. 40 days. He had plenty of time to show himself to plenty of people. Let me just read you verse 5 through 7. I'll add some commentary as I'm reading. And that he, Jesus Christ, appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then to the 12. That's the 12 disciples. In the upper room, as they're hiding, as Christ walked through the door with his new body. Verse 6. And that he, Jesus Christ, appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. At one time, he appeared to 500 brethren, brothers and sisters, most of whom remain until now. Why is that important? Why does Paul add that in there? Because this is about 20, 25 years after this event. Many of them are like, go ask them. Did you see the risen Christ? Yes, I did. But some have fallen asleep. Some have died. Verse 7. Then he, Jesus Christ, appeared to James. Who's James? Is this James, the son of Zebedee, James and John, or, or James, the son of Alphaeus, or I think this is James, Jesus' half-brother. Then to all the apostles, a wider group of disciples and apostles at a later time. He appeared to all these people, eyewitness evidence that Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave. Isn't that, isn't that important for you to know that? And they could, in this time when 1 Corinthians was written, they easily could have checked on many of these eyewitness accounts. But let me just go a little bit deeper. Not only was the eyewitness account more proof of the resurrection of Christ is this, changed lives. Remember, the gospel is the power of God. It changes people. Let me go, go and highlight a few, uh, some, of, some of these. Cephas, that's Peter. Do, you, do we remember Peter's low point? Peter denied Christ. Peter walked away from the ministry. And now Peter's boldly proclaiming Christ in the temple now to the priests, saying, whom you have persecuted, you've handed Christ to a godless man who crucified him on the cross, has risen from the grave. Peter was convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord. Peter was obsessed with this idea. He would actually go to death on a cross, upside down. How about, how about James? James, according to John 7, says that his brothers didn't believe in him. In Mark, I believe, it says that they thought he was crazy. Jesus, what are you talking about? You're embarrassing our family. James, who would later on become the head of the Jerusalem church, James, who would write an epistle, calls Jesus Christ his Lord. He goes, James, a slave of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls his big brother his Lord. Who would do that? And James would also be martyred too someday. 
Changed lives. But the biggest changed life comes out of verse 8 here. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus Christ, appeared to me also. Me is Paul. Untimely born. Basically, Paul calls himself a freak. A stillborn. He goes, he appeared to me. Why does he call himself a freak? For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners, the worst of sinners. He killed Christians. Can you think of anything worse than that? Killing Christians. Acts 8.3 says he ravaged the church, dragging off men and women to prison to be killed. He was separating families, leaving Christian babies and children as orphans. He would go into their house, drag the men and women so they could be tried and killed. That's what he did. And Jesus confronts him in, Rome, uh, in Acts 9 first. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me, Saul? You're persecuting church, therefore you're persecuting me, our Lord confronts him. Now let's take a little break right there. Can you think of a more hideous thing than that? And Paul recognized that. Perhaps you're sitting here today thinking, man, I've done some horrible things. I cheated on my wife. I'm a fraud. I let people down. I keep gossiping about people. Isn't that an encouragement? Is that not an encouragement to hear this, that Paul certainly is with Christ right now? Paul saying, I'm the foremost of sinners, the worst of them. Changed lives is proof of the gospel. We all have a testimony. Every single brother and sister has a testimony. As I get to meet new people in our church, I always often, often I like to ask, what is your testimony? Tell me how God redeemed you. What were you like before? As you think about yourself, can you see a change in your life since committing to follow Christ? Can you feel it? Can you see it? Can your parents see that difference in you? Can your spouse see a difference in you? Can your children see a difference in you? Not that we're perfect, but they, can they see a genuine love for Christ in you? And then when you come across people who are like, whoa, I used to know you back in the day, you're different. Does that not preach to you? The power of the gospel. The gospel changes lives. It's like a 180 degree about face. Let's make sure that we have a good testimony. This encourages us and this encourages other people. Now finally, before we start feeling good about ourselves and the change that's taking place, final point, verse uh, point six, remember the grace of the gospel. Grace, grace. Verse 10. But, the, but, but by the grace of God, grace is mentioned three times in this verse, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is Paul speaking. And his grace, God's grace toward me, did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Grace, unmerited favor, 
undeserved blessing. None of us deserve this. Not one of us deserves this. Paul didn't deserve this. Ephesians 2 says we're saved by grace as a gift so that no one could boast. None of us are able to boast. There's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's all about God. I mean, you can see we weren't around a thousand years ago when Psalms was written. We weren't, or 3,000 years ago when Psalms was written. We had nothing to do with this. Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. That's you and me. Unearned. Sinner saved by grace should be our motto. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And Paul's the worst of them. But what drove Paul, do you think? I always like to get into the minds of people. I want to know their motivation, right? I want to learn from people. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? If you're an athlete, you want to know how great athletes think, don't you? You want to know what makes them tick, what it takes, allows them to go to that edge every single time. I want to know that. And Paul definitely took it to the edge. He's like that man, or he's like that woman who was saved who's weeping at the feet of Christ because she'll sit forgiven of much. Do we realize how much we've been forgiven? He loved much because he was forgiven much. Do we understand this? Paul remembered the gospel. That's what allowed him to be sold out. That's what allowed him to say, I, but I labored even more than all of them to take it to the edge every single time. He was sold out for Christ because he remembered the power of the gospel. He remembered the person of the gospel. He loved Christ. He was possessed by Christ. He remembered the price of the gospel. He remembered the resurrection of the gospel. And he certainly understood the grace of the gospel. And look what happens. Look what the byproduct is, verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. That's the formula. You preach the gospel and people believe. Simple message. But I think Paul needed motivation. There was a lot of persecution that time and as Pastor Marco talked about freedoms, some of these freedoms are going to be gone someday, brothers and sisters. I want to give you a word of encouragement here that what motivated Paul. Acts 18 here, if you're able to turn there, Acts 18. This is Chronicles' his time in Corinth when he got there for the first time. He was persecuted. Um, the Jews cast him out as he was testifying about Christ in their synagogue. Synagogue leaders were c- converting to Christ. They were beat up. Paul understood persecution. Paul was hated wherever he went to. Instead of looking for a hotel, he, f- he looked at what the prisons were like. That's where oftentimes where he ended up. Paul understood persecution, but even he was still human. How are we going to handle that someday, brothers and sisters? It may happen in our lifetime to some degree. It's already happening. We live in a cancel culture. People try to marginalize us. may cost you your job. may cost you some uh, college entrance. It may cost you some promotion. It may cost you some friends. That is already around, okay? That's just the starting point right now. It's just going to continue to mount 
It's going to mount. And my job as a pastor is to preach the word to you so that you can have courage like Paul. By God's grace, we will have courage. Let's look at Acts 18, verse 9. Paul's second missionary journey ends up, takes him to Corinth. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. He was afraid. Even the great Paul was afraid, understandably. But go on speaking. Speaking what? The gospel. The gospel. For I determined so nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And do not be silent. Verse 10. Same promise that he gives the disciples and apostles as he gives the Great Commission. For I am with you. Lo, I am with you to the end of age, the Lord says. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Lo, I am with you, the Lord says. Let's remember this. This gospel is the power of God, and the gospel is, guarantees that God is with us to the end of age. Let's speak forth the gospel, no matter what the cost, no matter what the price, no matter what's at stake. Let's preach the gospel. Because what does the Lord say? I have many people in this city. The harvest is right, brothers and sisters. If you want to be a Christian in an exciting time, now is the time. This is an incredible time to be in Christ. This is an incredible time to look back someday in eternity and say, wow, remember those days. This is that time. And this is an exciting time. So let's remember the gospel. And I pray that this was encouraging to the saints in here. And if you do not believe what I said to you and you want to believe, come see me. Come see one of the pastors. We would love to explain more of the gospel with you afterwards or throughout the week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to preach your word. Thank you for the message of the gospel. Lord Jesus, you are so glorious. Thank you in these few verses out of 1 Corinthians that you take us to the heights of heaven. That we, we get to see into your mind, into your heart, the plan that you had before time. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we will preach your word, preach the gospel, and many will come to faith. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your obedience. Thank you for the Lord's table that reminds us of the gospel. Father, I pray that we will respond to this word by you, Lord. That we will preach. We will respond. We will remember the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would bring this to mind. I pray this will be a practice that we remind ourselves and one another of the gospel. The power of the gospel. The person, Lord Jesus, we love you. The price. The resurrection. The proof. Changed lives, our testimonies. And the grace, the amazing grace that you've shown us. Father, I pray, Lord, that for those in here who have not committed their lives to you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, that they would do it. And they will know today is the day of salvation. 
and they will be moved to tell somebody, tell a pastor, tell the person that, that they came with, will you do an amazing miracle today? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.